Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. The rocket equation is an amazing thing. It enabled us to launch into space and step foot on the moon, but at the same time, it's the thing which most holds us back from easy space travel, so let's avoid it using beaming technologies. We've discussed many alternative methods throughout this series on how to get into space, but most of these have revolved around some extreme engineering, like launch loops or orbital rings. They can get you into space cheap but have big upfront construction and maintenance costs. Last time in the series we discussed space planes, ships that can fly from an airport straight to orbit and maybe beyond. While that had many options, it was fundamentally limited by the rocket equation, and we could only partially circumvent that by letting it get much of its propellant at lower speeds from the air. But it could only do that in the atmosphere, and it still needed to burn huge amounts of fuel to operate. Today we'll be looking at how to get around that fuel issue by beaming energy to a ship, but let's begin by a quick review of what the rocket equation is, and why it constrains us. The basic form of any spaceship propulsion using propellant, shooting matter out the back from internal storage tanks, involves the propellant coming out at a certain speed, relative to the ship, called the exhaust velocity. We want the highest exhaust velocity possible, as that contains the most kinetic energy per bit of propellant, and thus shoves your ship faster. Problem is, the exhaust velocity is relative to that ship which will often be moving faster than that exhaust velocity. If your propellant comes out at say, Mach 1, but your ship is going Mach 2 at that point, you will still get thrust but you have to accelerate all that propellant mass up to Mach 2 before you can spit it out the back at Mach 1. When you look at how inefficient that is, you can see the fundamental problem with rocketry. It takes exponentially more fuel to achieve higher speeds relative to that exhaust velocity. The solid rocket boosters on the old shuttles had an effective exhaust velocity of 2500 meters per second, which is quite fast, but let's look at what an exhaust velocity of 2500 meters per second would get you if we burned one ton of it. If we had a 10 ton spaceship plus that one ton of fuel, we'd begin at 11 tons and end at 10 tons at a speed of 238 meters per second. Quite fast actually, that's 858 kilometers or 533 miles per hour, way faster than the freeway. Now if we just used a 1 ton ship and 1 ton of fuel, it would begin at 2 tons, and empty its fuel tanks to get to 1733 meters per second, quite a bit faster, 6238 kilometers, or 3876 miles per hour. Unfortunately, still nowhere near the speeds we need for orbit. Let's go to the other extreme. 10 times as much fuel as ship, 
starting at 1.1 tons and ending at just 0.1, a large human's mass, moving 6,000 meters per second, that's almost low Earth orbital speed, which is 7,800 meters per second. However, in practice, what with the atmospheric and gravity drag, we actually need a delta V of 9,400 meters per second, and for that, if we used one ton of fuel, we could only get 22 kilograms or 48 pounds into orbit, meaning we used around 50 times as much fuel as our ship weighed. If we wanted to get to Earth escape velocity, rather than low orbit, we would need to add about 3400 meters per second more speed, and now that one ton of fuel is only getting us 5 kilograms or 12 pounds of ship out there. And it will get worse and worse. From a practical standpoint, you can't really get a ship up to more than about four times its propellant's exhaust velocity, and that doesn't include fuel to slow down, which is way less only because so much of the mass is now gone, having been burned up to accelerate the ship. Now if your fuel is liquid hydrogen and oxygen, with an effective exhaust velocity of 4400 meters per second, not 2500 meters per second, you do a lot better, its exhaust velocity is 76% higher, so all those ratios we spoke of in terms of fuel to spaceship occur at 76% higher speeds. But if we wanted something with a fuel to ship and payload ratio of our first example, 10 tons of ship and 1 of fuel, more like a car, we'd need an exhaust velocity 100 times faster than that shuttle booster had, 250,000 meters per second, which is very fast but still just under 0.1% of light speed, and such a fuel would also allow a spaceship to reach Alpha Centauri in about a thousand years, so hardly a miraculous interstellar fuel. So that's the problem with the rocket equation, or part of it, because I've been saying effective exhaust velocity a lot, not just exhaust velocity, and a critical aspect of rocket propellants is that things don't just magically blow out the back of the ship at thousands of meters per second, and when total thrust matters more than exhaust velocity, like trying to get out of a deep gravity well, how quickly you can push propellant out the back can be more important than how quick those individual particles are going, and is a major reason why we often use very different fuels and rockets for the first stage of a rocket launch. We've got to burn stuff to make it very hot so that the particles are moving very fast, and that means making our propellant out of stuff that burns, which generally means oxygen, which is a horrible propellant. That oxygen, the oxidizer, is providing all the energy when it combines with the fuel to make the propellant, but it's essentially sapping our total thrust. Hydrogen is typically your ideal propellant because it's a single proton and the typical speed particles move at a given temperature goes with the square root of temperature and the inverse square root of particle mass, quadruple the temperature, double the speed, quadruple the mass, half the speed. Oxygen, being 8 protons and 8 neutrons, weighs about 16 times what hydrogen does and so is only moving at a quarter the speed of any hydrogen atom at the same temperature. We just saw what a big deal exhaust velocity was for ships, and quadrupling the exhaust velocity of that propellant is the difference between a ton of fuel getting 5 kilograms away from Earth, or about 60 times that, it's a very big deal. We have one more problem though, because we can't just quadruple the temperature for instance, or we'd melt our engine. This is essentially why the ion drive is so enticing as an alternative, 
it shoots particles out at very high speed, using a magnet and electricity to do so. This is also why we like using light or lasers for propellant. The exhaust velocity of light is the speed of light, and when you plug that in as your exhaust velocity, you need to be moving at interstellar speeds before you even need to worry about the rocket equation, as it's about 100,000 times faster than our typical rocket propellants. Heat is not the only way to move particles, nor does it necessarily require burning stuff on location, but it is what gives us high thrust, and that's important for spaceships leaving Earth. We've talked about using light sails or ion drives in deep space before, such as in interstellar laser highways, but it's not something we can really do down here on Earth because of gravity and air. The air is constantly trying to sap away your speed, which is handy for saving fuel on landing by aerobraking, but not for speeding up. You also have to maintain at least 1G of thrust to avoid falling down, which will rapidly sap your speed via the method known as lithobraking. So you need to provide a lot of thrust, not just a high exhaust velocity, but a lot of exhaust in a short time. We could bounce a very strong laser off a mirror on the bottom of the ship, same as we can still doing for ships in deep space, but this has some problems. Photons, by themselves, are pretty much raw momentum, they are the perfect propellant, and they get around the rocket equation if you're firing them from elsewhere, because they double up the momentum transfer if they bounce, and most importantly, you're not carrying them around on your ship. If you could, via some sort of perfect mirror box with light inside it, or fuels like antimatter or Kugelblitz black holes, you've got your perfect launch fuel, mostly. See it takes either 3 megawatts a kilogram, or 3 gigawatts to push 1 ton of ship at 1G, just enough to make it hover on Earth, if you're carrying it as fuel, and half that, 1.5 megawatts a kilogram, or 1.5 gigawatts a ton, for if you're bouncing a beam off the ship. This is a bit of a problem, because that is a lot of energy. Just to put that into context, a car weighs around a ton, and the best it can do is 0-60 to in just over 2 seconds, a little over a G of thrust, and can kick up to several hundred horsepower, or around half a megawatt, so they're pulling a similar acceleration as a 1.5 gigawatt laser beam bounce will pull off using 3,000 times more power, 6,000 if we're just emitting it rather than reflecting. What's more, Lasers are quite hard to keep on target in air, especially when powerful like that, which we discussed in Power Satellites. You're probably wondering why I call photons the most efficient propellant when that car engine was doing 3,000 times better, particularly considering flooring the engine isn't terribly fuel efficient either. But that car is getting all its oxygen from outside, and it also isn't using a propellant. I mean technically the exhaust pipe on a car does produce thrust too, but it's pretty minimal. We discussed how air-breathing engines worked last time in space planes, but we glossed over the energy issue a bit. If I release a bunch of photons, 3 gigajoules worth for a second, I will have accelerated my 1 ton craft so it's going about 10 meters per second faster. If instead I heat up a big chamber of oxygen with that, dumping 3 gigajoules into roughly a ton of air, it will heat up by about 3000 Kelvin, moving at around 1600 meters per second, and if I blast that out the back of that chamber, which we'll say was a ton itself, that chamber will fly off at nearly a kilometer a second, a hundred times faster than the light beam offered, 
and if the propellant was hydrogen molecules instead of air, about four times faster. Though in fact it wouldn't since hydrogen has a way higher heat capacity than air, about 14 times as much, but we'll ignore that for the moment. Beyond noting that it lets us add far more heat to hydrogen, and thus energy, at a lower temperature and thus helps avoid melting our engine. Same energy used, 3 gigajoules, but one got you a hundred times as much speed. The problem is that we had to carry all that gas, whereas the photons, assuming we're even carrying them rather than receiving them from outside, massed virtually nothing, 34 micrograms. That's very important when you're in deep space and have no external source of propellant and want to reach very high speeds, in which case light becomes ideal. Here on Earth though, imagine we just had a big plane with a propeller and a solar panel or its microwave equivalent, a rectenna, which we could beam energy to and which would then power that propeller. It's never going to need to land to refuel, it's just sucking air in the front and out the back powered by an electric engine getting its juice from elsewhere. We can upgrade that to more of a rocket approach too. We suck air in the front into a chamber and superheat it. This is basically how the ramjet and scramjet designs we discussed in space planes work, and it gives them the nickname of a stovepipe. They have no moving parts and they use their fuel merely to heat air. Needless to say, we can do that electrically same as a typical electric space heater, indeed quite efficiently too. Heaters of all types, electric or chemical fuel, are the only machine we know of that is 100% efficient, though that is a bit of a cheater definition since we measure how inefficient other machines are by how much of the energy gets squandered as heat. The limitations on ramjets and scramjets in terms of speed, as we discussed in Space Planes, is that they run out of fuel to heat that air. A scramjet with a beam source of power can keep speeding up as long as it can get enough energy in to offset what it's losing to drag, and can stuff all that air through there at a high enough temperature and rate without melting the thing. I don't want to imply that's the easiest of engineering feats nor is keeping your beam on target, or pumping enough juice in to achieve this kind of thrust. It is generally hard to jam more than a megawatt of power into a square meter or something, and you lose a lot to heat, which in this case is fine if you're using something like a rectenna that's in the actual chamber of the scramjet, the stovepipe. Especially since all it is then is something super absorptive to the beaming frequency that turns it right into heat. Your ideal beaming frequency is something that is easily absorbed by that stovepipe but goes through air and other materials with virtually no effect. Your stovepipe probably needs to spin a bit to make sure it's getting evenly heated by that beam, and done right, it could have enough thermal mass to keep going for a while even if that beam broke contact. Fortunately, you are still mere milliseconds of light lag from your power sources, so maintaining that lock or re-establishing it is a lot faster and easier than when we discuss power or laser beaming for interplanetary or interstellar ships. The other good news is that once you start getting up above the main atmosphere, your drag starts going down, though of course you are also running low on material to cram into that stovepipe and to provide conventional lift on your wings. Fortunately, you'd be moving very fast by then, and as you go up more, a lot of what's available becomes hydrogen rather than oxygen and nitrogen. 
Ideally, this should let you avoid even needing an onboard propellant, but if you do need some, you're getting an exhaust velocity out of it equal to whatever temperature you can max out at, and if we're talking something like tungsten's melting point, 3700 Kelvin, diatomic hydrogen would be coming out at 6800 meters a second. In an energy-rich society that would likely do power beaming, hydrogen is easy enough to source, what with all those oceans, and you shouldn't even need to tap that until you're nearly up to orbital speed anyway, if at all. Once you're out of the atmosphere and in orbit, you do need that onboard propellant, but you don't need the high thrust anymore, and could switch over to a low thrust option like an ion drive, powered by that energy beam, or even just go the reflection route. It's very easy for me to imagine personal space planes along these lines, in an economy running on either fusion or beamed-in power like we discussed in power satellites. You use classic propellers or turbofans for low speed, switch to the stovepipe scramjet for high speeds, and to ion drive or reflection once in higher orbit for long slow acceleration to interplanetary or interstellar speeds. Of course beaming isn't limited to photons either, you could send a beam of ionized particles instead, reflected magnetically or captured for use as propellant later, though that doesn't work well in an atmosphere. So quite a few engineering challenges but no super science involved either. What's the upsides of this approach, beyond what we mentioned? First, it does circumvent the giant personal weapon issue. It's still a fast device, meaning you can crash it into something, but unlike our other higher power sources, atomic fission, bottled light, antimatter, or black holes, it doesn't actually contain those itself, it just has its own kinetic energy and thus is way safer for on-planet or low-orbit use. Barring a fusion reactor that is also quite compact and cheap, this is really the only option that would ever permit a personal spaceship. Your neighbor can have one in the garage, no risk of explosions or terrorist applications beyond speeding up and ramming something, which is not very attractive as an attack method, especially since to get power you need that off-site beam and you need precision tracking. So if you deviate dangerously you can be easily targeted, and your hypersonic debris is going to mostly burn up before smacking stuff anyway you won't be pulling high-speed maneuvers anywhere near the ground. So it's very safe, and it's also very cheap as a spaceship goes, because that core engine is just a big scramjet cone and stovepipe, probably just raw metal, though it might get pricey with extreme precision machining and expensive alloys. However, those are both the kind of thing an economy of scale tackles well, so we could be talking about car prices something you could probably fit into a large garage and could probably buy without being fabulously wealthy. This will probably never be the most efficient way into space, the orbital ring is likely to always dominate that for reasonably fast low-energy ground-to-space options, but for an energy-rich society it's probably the safest and most personally convenient approach we've got. It is to the orbital ring what the car is to the train, less efficient but way more convenient, and it lets you get where you want, whether to a destination on Earth, in orbit, or off to the moon. Indeed it could be scaled up for interplanetary travel, your own personal space yacht, though without an onboard power source you do have to stay in places where those beams are available, 
or have a secondary engine to walk outside their zone of coverage, a bit like early cell coverage you'd expect it to grow with time. But it would be ideal for space tourism, which we'll be talking about in a couple weeks, and you can't just take your own personal spaceship anywhere you want so long as you stick to the powered paths. You probably would use that approach too for orbital versions, keep a powerful and wide beam running between set mirrors or similar to create lanes, minimizing the need for tracking and keep the beam on, and also minimize traffic problems too. If everyone owns one, you definitely want some metaphorical roads or skyways. So we've got our upcoming episodes in a moment, including a live stream this weekend, and it reminded me of a comment I got after one about it being neat during those to see where I did all my riding at. I know a fair number of riders who can walk anywhere in a physical sense, but for me the old rule of thumb about finding your own space to walk in is entirely literal, and my office at home is entirely configured around that and it's the only place I ride. Riding is a very wide area when it comes to both mediums and styles, so that no one's process or advice is really going to work for everyone, or anyone if you try to mimic a process exactly, but some advice is fairly universal and that's one of them. There's an excellent video course by Simon Van Boy, Six Steps to a Successful Riding Habit, on Skillshare that I have to admit appealed to me in large part because it was such a close match for my own process, but as mentioned there are many different work styles and mediums, and someone used to writing news articles on their laptop on the bus, between events, is going to be far different than someone writing a novel at a home shared with a noisy roommate, or someone writing weekly science videos while trying to fend off his cats. So if you're trying to get started writing, it's a good idea to sample the methods of a lot of different people till you find your own, and that's true of almost any creative work, not just writing. Skillshare has a ton of videos on writing, everything from best methods to how to make an interesting protagonist, and a lot of other instructive or inspirational videos on creative processes like drawing or animating. A premium membership gives you unlimited access to over 20,000 high quality classes on must know topics so you can improve your skills, unlock new opportunities, and do the work you love. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. To sign up, visit the link in the description, and the first 500 visitors get two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for free. Act now for this special offer and start learning today. So as mentioned, in a couple of weeks we'll be taking a look at space tourism, from the near-term possibilities of orbital hotels to the more fascinating options on the Moon and beyond. But first, next week we'll commemorate the 4th of July, the day of barbecuing, by taking a look at synthetic meats and other tasty technologies, from lab-grown meat to mammoth steaks and dino burgers. We also have our end of the month livestream Q&A coming up this Sunday, June 30th at 4pm Eastern and I hope you'll join us there and ask some questions. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, please like it and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.